Welcome, everyone. My name is Mike Verbsky, and you are listening to Limitless. This podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Amputation and Limb Difference Physical Therapy. And hello, everyone out there in my Limitless audience. Welcome back for another exciting and informative episode that we're going to be bringing to you today. I am thrilled to have all of you back. I hope you enjoyed our last couple of episodes, and we're going to just hit the ground running with another one. Today, I am happy to welcome Catherine Joseph. She is the National Trauma Survivors Network Coordinator for the American Trauma Society. And I'm just ecstatic to have her. I know, Catherine, you spoke a couple months ago with the Amputee Coalition, and I'm happy to welcome you to Limitless. How are you today? I'm doing so well. I'm so excited to be here with you all today. So, Catherine, how did you come to be with the National Trauma Survivors Network? So it's a really interesting story. So I was a senior in college looking for a internship to basically graduate you know, with my undergraduate degree. And I came across the Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore, Maryland, Trauma Survivors Network. And my father is actually a trauma survivor okay. of an accident many, many years ago. So I thought, you know what? I, I kind of know a little bit about trauma. My undergraduate degree, believe it or not, was health education. Thought I wanted to be a health teacher. And so I had to do a joint community and a school health internship. So for my community internship, I found the Trauma Survivors Network. And the moment I walked to that door, I said, never mind. I don't want to be a teacher anymore. I want to do this job. <laughs> and I just kind of worked my way through that internship. And then the job became available and they gave it to me. And I kind of just hit the ground running ever since then. <laughs> it's funny how our paths kind of start. I remember as a new grad and I sent out something ridiculous, 35, 40 resumes, got two job interviews and one job offer. And I went, that's what I'm going to do with myself. Yeah, yeah. I actually, so I graduated and then I spent some time, I, I flew to Africa and said, you know, I'm young. Oh, wow. I got to do something now. So I flew to Africa and I was like, I'm just going to, you know, see what I can do to help people. So I, I worked in some hospitals and clinics in Ghana, Africa for a few months. And while I was there, I was kind of looking for jobs. You know, my parents were pressuring me to, you, you got to do something. You got to grow up a little bit. <laughs> and so I came back and I actually took a teaching job in inner city Baltimore, Maryland, because I thought, okay, this is, you know, there's a job opening. The TSN position wasn't available at that time. So I took the teaching job and I just further was like, okay, this is not what I want to do. It's not meant for me. How do I get back to, to trauma patients? They were, you know. High school students just were not my thing. And halfway through that school year, the, the Shock Trauma Center contacted me and asked if I wanted to interview for the TSN role. So I quit actually halfway through the school year <laughs> and oh, was like, see ya, I'd much rather work with trauma patients. You know, much love to high school students, but I was just not in the, in the stage of my life to deal with high school students. Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame you. I'm still not in the stage and I've got <laughs> one that's about to become a high school student in my own house. So I, I understand. <laughs> yeah, definitely. What sort of differences actually, since you worked there, what sort of differences did you find between the African systems and the systems we have set up here in the States? 
Yeah. So I, like I said, I kind of just flew there and was like, I'm just going to, you know, I found this family that was going to take me in. So I didn't really have a huge plan. And so when I got there, I, I just got connected to some like local clinics. So I worked mostly in like labor and delivery, like little community clinics. So, okay. I mean, I was like, in like villages in on the Gold Coast, Cape Coast, sorry, of Ghana. And I mean, I was working in clinics that had, you know, dirt floors and tin roofs. I and mean, I actually worked in one clinic where it was a, a, a delivery clinic where people could come and have their babies. And there was a line out the door and people were being dropped off from like over 60 miles to deliver their babies. So there was, oh my goodness, know, I was helping women in this line like, you know, go through breathing exercises. Again, I was like a 21 year old, you know, didn't really know anything about babies, but I knew about health education. So I'm trying to, you know, you know, hygiene, all those kind of things. So it was just a different, it was a diff, very eye-opening, lots of culture shock. And, you know, I got to work in those clinics, but then I also was hooked up with some of the, the leaders in these communities and helping put in these policies and get funding to expand things. So I mean, I was in a very poor area, so, you know, obviously it's much different than what we're used to here. But what I will say is these people were just so committed. I mean, there were people who were walking miles, like over 20 miles, or not, maybe not 20 miles, but they were walking very <laughs> long distances to come to these clinics to help birth babies. And people were just so committed and, and they knew that they didn't have a whole lot of resources, but they were willing to do whatever it took to, to get these people the care that they needed. Wow. And that's so incredible when you realize that, you know, here where, where I am on Long Island, um, hospitals are, I mean, I've got one that's at three quarters of a mile from my house and mm -hmm. that one was super busy. Well, there's two more right up the road, 10, 15 minutes. So to, for us to fathom here, walking miles and miles to get good care is not something that we're used to over here. Yeah. Not even just good care. I mean, just water. So yeah. um, to get water, to have, the, I mean, you didn't have running water in these clinics. You had to bring buckets and I could, you, you learned to carry it on your head and you carried that bucket of water. And it was, I mean, it, it was very eye-opening. I had so sure. much culture shock coming back to the United States. I'll never forget my, we went to dinner and my brother didn't eat all of his meal. Like the day, the, the night that I got back, we thought it was a good idea to all go out to dinner. And I, I had to get up and leave. Cause I'm like, how dare you not eat all your food? <laughs> and my mom was like, oh my God, what happened to, what happened to you, Catherine? My, it, it took me a while because you just don't, you mean, you don't see things like that. And I always right. advocate for people to go do something like that. I mean, it was very bold. And I tell every young person I talk to today, like, just go travel somewhere and don't make plans. Just, just go, just go and do something and live in a different way that you live now, because it's going to be really beneficial for your future. Sure. I imagine, though, you found a lot of similarities in terms of when people experience a traumatic event between the two, though. Yes? Yes, absolutely. You know, we did a lot. There was a lot of discussion on, like, abortion, and there was a lot of discussion on mental health and postpartum. And so, there, yeah, there's a lot of mental health, you know, issues that I worked with patients there that I also work with patients in the trauma world over the last several years. 
So what do you see actually with your patients when they go through a traumatic event? What do they experience? What do they express to you? Yeah. So when I started Chuck Trauma, so I was really lucky to be full-time, fully funded to, to run the Trauma Survivors Network program. So I was, you know, going around and rounding on patients. And so the type of trauma that I have spent the last 10 years working with is, is physical trauma. So people who had car accidents or fall from a height or, you know, a victim of violence. So I would round on them at the probably about 24 hours after their event happened. And okay. you know, we all know nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to get hit by a car today. So um, you can imagine their lives are quite literally flipped upside down at that point. So at that first visit, I, I wouldn't see a lot and I wouldn't get a lot out of people. And it was almost like they were still in that state of shock, which is very normal when you experience a traumatic event. And I would say, you know, lots of emotions. Some people react when they're in shock and some people are just kind of like very quiet and very calm. And it's, it's kind of bizarre because you think of shock and you think it'd be like a state of panic. But everybody's body responds differently to, you know, traumatic experiences. But I would say it wasn't until four or six weeks when I would see them again, come back for a clinic appointment or, you know, come back to the hospital for some kind of, of treatment. That's when I would see the, the impacts of, you know, the mental health, whether it was depression or if they were starting to have some post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, anger, guilt, all of those things kind of combined together. Is there any sort of reaction that you've seen from people that is sort of a red flag for you that more extensive services are required or is everything sort of umbrella termed in their initial post-traumatic event? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like everything's, you know, really umbrella termed and and something that we did, and if anybody, you know, that's listening to this is in the healthcare field, you know, a lot of, of policies are in place for screening. So finding out ways to screen people, especially for post-traumatic st stress disorder or depression. And we used to do a screening tool that every single patient that was treated there, and, and shock trauma sees over 9,000 patients a year, every single patient would get this screening tool. And it's, you know, usually, I think the gold standard was four to six weeks from discharge. Some people probably got it earlier. Some people probably got it a little bit later, but it screened for, you know, all kinds of things. So depression, I had a depression score, I had a resiliency score. So, mm -hmm. you know, seeing what your resilience is, your access to resources. It also had like tobacco, alcohol. So all of these, you know, all encompassing that all contribute to your recovery as well as your mental health after a trauma. In terms of the, the screen, does, is that something that any of our clinicians out there can can utilize or do you need specific training to use it? Should yeah. you reach out to any certain discipline for access to that? Yeah, there are a ton of screening tools out there. So you can look up evidence-based screening tools for, you know, specific things. They have all-encompassing ones as well. But there is also one available through the Trauma Survivors Network. So if you go to our website, which is just www.traumasurvivorsnetwork.org, under resources for survivors, there is a recovery assessment. Anybody can go and take that. It's totally free. Every All of our services are free. 
and you do the screening tool, you answer the questions, and then at the end of it, it actually automatically scores it for you and gives you customized recommendations based on how you score. It's a really cool tool. Definitely encourage you to check it out and share with your community. Yeah, that's great because where I am, so we're, especially with the state of healthcare right now and short lengths of stay in the hospital, we're getting our patients anywhere from a few days after their limb loss surgery, anywhere up to a few weeks after their surgery. So we're seeing a little bit of a spectrum there depending on their acuity in the hospital and any complications that they have. In addition to if they did go to an acute rehab center first before coming to us in, in the subacute world. So we're kind of getting people at potentially different stages. Yeah. And I think it's important to try and expose people to resources at all these different stages. So even if like in the very beginning, right after someone might have their amputation, you know, they're, they're, you know, whether it's traumatic or whether it's, you know, as a result of cancer or diabetes or whatever, you know, you have a serious change. Your life is very much changed. And, you know, that initial contact, like right in the hospital, not the time to really screen them for those things, but just Mm -hmm. let them know that it's normal that if when you go home, you start to feel like this, or, you know, if you feel like you want to talk to someone, but you don't know where to find them, like these, this is how you can reach out. So I think, you know, different stages, just introducing the idea that, you know, some of these feelings that might happen are normal. I mean, you might never have some of these feelings, but if you do, here's how you can get access to some of these resources available to you. Right. And I guess I would imagine you can obviously correct me, but there's a difference between those patients that sort of knew they were going to have an amputation, such as somebody with peripheral, peripheral vascular disease or diabetes compared to someone who did go through a traumatic event, car accident, crush injury, where it was, as we said, unplanned. Mm hmm. Yeah, I can't say from personal experience, but, you know, I can imagine when something is planned, when you have a planned amputation, I can imagine it's still really hard. Um, yes. Even even though you're preparing for the surgery and, and you're preparing, okay, I know I'm going to get prosthetics one day or I know I'm going to have therapy. I can imagine there's very similar feelings of, you know, shock and fear directly after anxiety. So I can imagine, you know, it's it's a little different, but I can imagine there's a lot of feelings that are very similar for a traumatic versus a non-traumatic amputation. What should clinicians do for our patients when we meet them that first time and when we're talking to them? What sort of support can we give them initially? Yeah, so I think, you know, I think the biggest thing is, you know, having all levels of of healthcare professionals be involved. So oftentimes, and, and this happened when I used to work at Shock Trauma, people would often call me and say, hey, my patient won't stop crying. Could you go talk to them? <laughs> and I would say, hey, you're a person too, you know, you could you could talk to people, you know, ask them what's going on. And And I think for a long time, we thought of, you know, when patients had feelings or when patients were talking about mental health, it was like you had to contact a mental health professional, which is not true. You know, you can have physical therapists or you can have, you know, speech therapists or social workers or like janitorial staff. Like everybody can have a conversation with someone that can support someone's mental health and and recovery stage. So I think having education for all those different levels, all the way from your, you know, 
trauma surgeons or, you know, whatever, top of the leadership and things like that, all the way down to the people who are changing trash bags in patients' rooms. So I think, you know, just education there that, you know, these people are, patients are going through a lot and how can you support them? And whether it's getting people access to where you can send someone for websites, like there's like all these national organizations that how great would it be that every single person in your hospital knew if someone was, you know, feeling depressed or feeling anxious that there's all these free national organizations that can support people. So I don't think it's a matter of like just, you know, telling how how to have healthcare professionals talk with people. I think it's more how can we get the full care team and the full healthcare system on board to support the mental health recovery. Definitely. I mean, I agree with that 100%. I think that, you know, especially, you know, physical therapists, occupational therapists, we're with our patients for one, two hours a day. Nursing is obviously in and out. And like you said, though, like the janitorial staff, the, the our ancillary services that all of these facilities provide, they're in and out and they see these patients. I do wonder, though, you know, is there a, a threshold, if you will, of patient symptoms that we should be on the lookout for where having that clinician, having that professional come in and talk to them when we're outside of our, our not necessarily scope of practice, but outside of what our comfort zone is for, for helping our patients. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I think, you know, having social workers or case managers, I know every hospital system is different in who provides these kind of psychosocial services. So I think having a referral system in place. So maybe you educate, you know, the whole system about, you know, mental health and how important it is. And, you know, patients go, you know, they come in and we've been really, really good at treating people physically, but we haven't been so great in the, in the mental health no. world. So having that education, but then also having, you know, a referral system in place. So say you have a physical therapist who's talking with the patient, have some kind of system in place that, okay, at the end of that treatment, physical therapist, maybe as they're charting, they're like, man, he just seemed really down today. And, you know, I wish, you know, I, I wonder how I can get him connected. So having a system in place for that physical therapist to, you know, send whether it's a page or a text or an email or something that just like, triggers for the the social worker or the case manager, whoever is doing the psychosocial support, you know, psych services for them to come and do a consult or come and check in with that patient. So I don't know if there's specifics, you know, things to look out for that I think we can educate people on. I think it's just being able to read patients and, and, you know, while you're providing excellent care, having conversations with people and talking with families as well. I don't know if I answered that question for you. I think I kind of went in circles there. <laughs> no, no, that was good, actually. You know, it, it's so tough because I, I agree with you. I don't think we get really great mental health training when we're in school. And even for the new grads that I work with, it's not something that's really completely covered. It sort of mentions in this course or in that course, an ancillary sort of topic. And I think we're all kind of taught to consult out. I mean, one of the things that I do in, in our building is when we have our patients coming in after limb, social work automatically meets with all of the patients and they do their intake and they do their assessments. They do a trauma assessment with them as well. 
but I make sure that the psychologist on staff at least meets with them. And then at least she has that sort of baseline of when they came in in those first couple of days. So as we notice anything that may be different with an individual as they're going through their recovery, she's had that baseline at least so she can go in and follow up and offer her advice and be able to sit with the individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I think exposure is also really important, you know, for many, many years, like it, and we're still not 100% away from this, but for so long, it was like, nobody wants to talk about mental health, right? So right. I think exposure is so important. So, you know, I, I agree. And, and a lot of the healthcare staff, like you guys, you know, you all have a lot of work to do too. So maybe you aren't able to have these in-depth conversations and maybe you're just focusing on how are you going to get this patient to get out of bed and, and do something, which I totally understand. So something that we advise a lot of our trauma centers to do is, is to, you know, some ideas are to put up like flyers or put up like a a poster or, you know, have stuff that go, it, it's in patient spaces, right? So in the waiting rooms, in the clinics, if they get any kind of handouts that talks about some of the signs and symptoms and talks about, you know, what, what are some normal things to, to feel after you go through a traumatic experience. And the other great recommendation is, is peer support. So there's a lot yes. of power in peer support. So having people who have gone through gone through some type of trauma and in the in the limb loss world you know being able to connect someone who has already been through that process who whether it was planned or unplanned who has lost a limb and is now thriving in their recovery being able to offer that to a new patient it just makes a world of a, di a difference i honestly think that peer support sometimes is, is, is more helpful than some of the therapeutic and, and clinical care that some of our patients receive, because unless you've been there, you don't know what it, you don't know what it's like. And exactly. hundred percent. Yeah. And it's very easy for people to say, oh, I know what you're going through, but no, you don't, you really don't know what right. they're going through. So just, you know, just some ideas for how, how trauma centers and not even just trauma centers, you know, care teams, I know almost all of the big prosthetic companies have a peer support program. So, you know, we're definitely making big improvements in that world that 10 years ago when I started in trauma care, we just weren't there yet. We were still just very focused on the physical aspect of recovery. Yeah. And I think we still, to some degree, get that tunnel vision um, mm -hmm. towards the physical recovery. I think, unfortunately, like you said, we're, we're busy, but it's also a matter of our time constraints in terms of lengths of stay Yes, are such that, you know, bottom line is I've got, you know, X number of days to get you home, to get you safe with your physical aspects so that you don't have a rehospitalization for X, Y, and Z physical ailments or medical issues that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's still always that chance of a hospitalization because of some of these mental issues that people are going through and challenges that they're trying to overcome. Mm -hmm. I love the peer mentor programs for the exact reason you said. I mean, I've treated hundreds of patients that have had limb loss and gone through that process, but I'm still not an amputee myself. Mm -hmm. So I cannot cross that barrier to truly say, I know what you're going through. One of the things that I love is when we do our support group meetings where I am, I type up my agenda every month and we put it out there. And then uh, my goal and my hope is always that I throw my agenda in the garbage because 
the group members have taken over the conversation and they are going back and forth, trading ideas and insights and talking about their feelings and their challenges that they've gone through because they're the ones that are doing it day to day and they're supporting each other. And the conversations generally are 10 times better because they're supporting each other. Definitely. I, I used to run support groups at Shock Trauma and same with you. I would, I would have a topic and I would have an agenda, but after a couple you know months of doing it, I was like, I think I'm just here to open the door and send out the emails for people to know where to go and mm -hmm. provide snacks and then say, okay, guys, snacks it's time to key. go home now. <laughs> the group kind of ran, ran itself. It was people who they just wanted to connect with other people who, who understood it and they wanted that community, which is so important, having a, a community of people to to have a safe space to, to share what they're going through. Mm -hmm. When we get our patients coming in and we give them a whole bunch of information and reading and magazines and literature, and it's overwhelming times 10. One of the things that I make sure that we give all of our patients when they come in is resources for their caregivers, for their family and friends. Mm -hmm. And I know the Amputee Coalition, they have a caregiver support group as well that meets. So that's available for our patients and their families. But what else can we do to help support the family and friends of, of our patients? Yeah, so I think just providing a lot of guidance. You know, family members, especially in a traumatic experience, they're they're right there with their loved ones, right? They also didn't wake up and say, my loved one's going to get hit by a car today. So, you know, oftentimes it's just reminding family members that they need to take care of themselves too. They're not going to be able to take care of their loved ones if, they, if they're not well themselves. And oftentimes when I was at Shock Trauma, the conversations I'd have with families at the bedside was exactly that. Like, your loved one is getting the best care they possibly can at this point. And while you being here is really great, but you being here 24 seven, not taking any breaks and not eating and not, you know, not just doing basic self-care things, you can't, it's not sustainable. So a lot of times I was just basically telling people, you know, it's, it's time to go home and it's time to look after yourself because you're not going to take care of your loved ones. You can't take care of yourself. And I think also letting family members know that it's okay if they also need help too. And if that means seeking professional, you know, emotional support that a lot of times family members feel guilty. I never understood, I never understood this. You know, my dad, I was a young kid when my dad was injured. So it, it's hard for me to put things in perspective, but mm -hmm. I always hear people saying, oh, well, I always say, maybe, maybe it's worth talking to someone. Have you thought about, you know, maybe reaching out? Oh, no, I, I can't do that. You know, we are going to so many appointments for my loved one. So it's a lot of times I'm, I'm convincing people, hey, you're going through something too. And it, it's totally normal for you to be feeling the way that you're feeling. And it's all connected to being able to take good care of your loved one. So I think just normalizing that um, family members are not alone. And whether it's you know, professional support or same thing, peer support, that it's very normal for, for people to, to have the feelings that they're having as a family member and, and just sharing that it, it could be really helpful for them to reach out for some of that support. Right. And I think the other challenge for us as clinicians is there's definitely a generational issues and situations that come up. I know my grandmother was always one. You, you don't bother the children with anything. 
Yeah. You know, it's not their concern. It's our concern. And then, of course, you know, years later, you get surprised and you're like, oh, really? So I've got that in my medical history. Oh, good, good to know. Okay. You know, and I think that we still kind of find that is because I have certain patients that, you know, they don't tell us anything. And mm -hmm. they were always sort of taught to, you know, stuff it down in your gut and ignore it and it'll go away. And it just, it, it harms the process, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and because we're talking about limb loss, I do want to just give a shout out. There are some really great books. So speaking about like, you know, hush, hush and not involving the children, there are some really, really great books out there for children to understand whether they're going through limb loss or they have mm. a parent or a loved one. Amputeddy Helps a Friend. It's one of my favorite books. Five Fingers and Ten Toes. There's just a ton of like books that I encourage people to check out, whether you're, you know, working with children who have limb loss themselves, or if they have a loved one, I think these books are my two personal favorites. Mm -hmm. Really good resources there. Yeah, those are great. Because I know it's, it's almost second nature for some of us, if we've been working in an adult population for so long to have conversations with adults. Uh -huh. But then when you have to translate it, so it's relatable to children, it's, it's a whole nother skill set. So to have those resources where we can help direct patients and their families to to help children, because children don't necessarily understand what's happening when it's a parent or a sibling mm -hmm. that's going through it. Children are naturally curious, so they ask a lot of questions, but to really internalize it when it's your immediate family is a, a different discussion altogether. Yeah, definitely. And there's a ton of resources. I've never worked in a pediatric hospital, but where I was in, in Baltimore, we did have child life services. So I know that's a, do you guys, all, do you have that at your facility? Not at my facility. Mine's okay. more of an older population. Five. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So child life, life services, they, they are like fully trained to I, I always say just bring smiles to people's faces. And if you're a child life specialist, I'm sorry, I just kind of, I, gave you a, a job description there, but <laughs> that's how I imagine all of you guys, because every single child life specialist I've met has this like awesome library and then awesome like craft card and games and all these activities, but they are trained to how to have these conversations, like how to have these conversations that, hey, your daddy's going to come home and he's going to only have one leg or you know, mommy's going in for a surgery and she's going to look a little different when she comes home, but she's still going to be able to play with you. So another really great resource that is available. And I know they have some great websites as well with resources like that. Nice. Yeah. So if you're out there and you need resources like that, be sure to, to look them up. There are tons of resources and references and materials out there to help you get through some of those tougher times. You, as the saying goes, you, you never have to go through this sort of thing alone. So make sure you, you, you ask, make sure you, you, you check it all out. Are there any specific resources through the... Yeah, so I guess I could have done this earlier, but I'll do it now. So I'll share a little <laughs> bit about the Trauma Survivors Network. Uh, so you've lived and listened to this far. Now I'll tell you a little bit more about my day-to-day. -day. So the Trauma Survivors Network is a program of the American Trauma Society. And we partner with trauma centers, both adult and pediatric trauma centers across the U.S., also, we have one site in Canada and one site in Australia. So we're almost the International Trauma Survivors Network. But we partner with these trauma centers to offer TSN, Trauma Survivors Network, programs within these centers. 
So we offer a lot of guidance on how to start a peer support group, how to start a peer visitation program, which is more one-on-one. But we also do a lot of information sharing. So we have a really great website where trauma centers can go on and they have their own trauma center profile within, you know, the, the national website. And there they can list local resources that can benefit trauma patients in those areas as well as like programs and events that are happening. So I I definitely encourage people to check out the Trauma Survivors Network website. Everything we do is free. You can join the website, which would keep you in touch with any events that we do. Our biggest event that we do is National Trauma Survivors Day, which is the third Wednesday of every May. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would say the Trauma Survivors Network is a really great, I'm a little biased, resource to (laughs) check out. Other resources... And through the TSN website, there's also a Traumapedia, which offers a ton of support and resources that are available to the public. And I'll just throw out some of my my favorites, some that I work very closely with. So SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, that is a fantastic resource. The National Alliance on Mental Illness, the National Center for PTSD, you know, they're, oh, this is a good one. Sorry, I got really excited there. I was going to say, I like this. I like this. (laughs) Family Caregiver Alliance. So speaking of families, that is a great one that you can give out to family members. It's the Family Caregiver Alliance. Tons of great resources and support available through there. Oh my goodness, I could like go on and on. What else were we talking about? Pediatric mm-hmm. Child Mind Institute. They have a ton of resources, whether you are a pediatric patient or have a family member who is going through some type of trauma or experience that could use some mental health resources. Child Mind Institute is a really good one. But all of these resources, and, and there's many more than the ones I just threw out there, are available just by Google search, but they're also, if you go to the Traumapedia on the Trauma Survivors Network website, they okay. are all listed out there for you as well. Oh, that's great. Because a lot of times just finding those references, finding those resources is where people get kind of jammed up and where do I go for help? So that's all fantastic information. One of the things that I ask all of our guests that have come on in the short life of my podcast, is if there was any singular take-home message that you think someone going through limb loss or any of our clinicians out there, what would that one piece of real gold standard information be for them? Ooh, okay. So gold standard. I think, you know, we're talking a lot about mental health and traumatic experiences. So I think the Big takeaway there is, let's see, so after experience a traumatic event, I think, you know, whether that traumatic event is something like COVID or a global mm-hmm. pandemic, or that is something like getting a prognosis that you are going to lose your leg, or if that's having a car accident, I'm I'm not listing all the different types of traumas, but I think you get the, what I'm trying to go for here is any type of traumatic event, it is so, so important to turn to others for support and to know that you are not alone. And there are so many resources that are available to support you in this journey. Also to look after yourself. So to just 
know different self-care practices. And m- many of these organizations have events where they do things that can teach you some self-care practices that might be new to you after you experience a traumatic event. And just, you know, really just trying to be the best you and really focusing on yourself. And then, the you know, the, the, the final takeaway there is if that peer support is not helping you or if turning to family members to talk to or if doing self-care practices or looking after yourself are not doing it for you, then seek professional help and and help normalize that it's it's very normal to to look for people to help you professionally. So, you know, I just encourage if you're going through a traumatic experience yourself or a traumatic event yourself, you have a loved one, or if you're treating people who've experienced traumatic events, that those first two steps are really important, but sometimes it's not enough. And there's just so much out there and there are so many resources people can turn to for that professional help. So that was a really long takeaway. But I think that, that that's my biggest thing is, is, you know, what to do, what to do after you experience something traumatic and just to normalize, you know, what, what happens after a traumatic experience and support, support, you know, all communities in, in finding the care that they need. That is just fantastic advice. Well, I want to thank you, Catherine, so much for coming on today. This was an amazing conversation and lots of good information, lots of great take home for everyone out there in the audience. Yes. Thank you so much for having me and best of luck with this podcast. I will share with everybody. This is my first podcast, so I'm so excited I got to be with you all. And uh, yes, I encourage you to check us out. We're on social media too. And thank you again for having me. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to Limitless. If you're interested in learning more about the Academy of Amputation and Limb Difference Physical Therapy, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.amputationrehab.org. I hope you enjoyed this talk today, and stay tuned for more exciting guests and information coming to you soon.